Hello and welcome to Family Room Discussions, where you invite me, Dalton Anderson, to your Come Follow Me study, and we discuss ideas, questions, and insights to the week's lesson. Let me be clear, I am not a church historian or a scripture scholar. I am your average saint trying to build my faith in Christ and deepen my testimony of the gospel and the scriptures, and I have found that by discussing Come Follow Me with others, it helps me to do just that. My sincere hope is that for those struggling to study Come Follow Me for whatever reason, maybe because you're single and you don't have others to study with, or like me, your kids are still too young to understand English, or really for any other reason, that you will allow me to join your family for about 30 minutes to help with that gospel dialogue. With that, let's start this family room discussion. Brothers and sisters, family and friends, this is episode 34, following along with lesson 33, Helaman chapters 1 through 6. Congratulations, we made it out of Alma. As a teenager, I remember just making out a second Nephi was kind of the trick for me, but then as I got older, uh, Alma felt like Everest. But uh, now I feel like it's always sad to actually get past any of the books because as you end one and start another, you say goodbye to a lot of heroes. Like we just said goodbye, goodbye to Moroni and Helaman, and, and I love them and their example. So it's always a little sad, passing of one to the another, but with all endings comes new beginnings. And Helaman 1 to 6 is no different. Uh, so it's exciting. I, uh, you can probably hear my voice a little ragged. I just got back from a four-day fishing trip with my father-in-law and brothers-in-law. Uh, it was awesome. It was fantastic. I am not a fisherman. I have very little experience. They actually sent me to Cabela's to pick stuff up on the way down. And I, I literally told the guy, I was like, I am the most city guy you could probably find that they could have sent here to pick this stuff up. I don't know. I don't know what a lure is. I don't know what a jib is or jig. Uh, I don't, I don't know what line is, which and all that. Uh, I just looked at him completely lost and was like, please help me, please help me. And he laughed and got me sorted out. So I learned a lot this trip, caught some fish, got to eat them. It was fantastic. Had a mouse in my sleeping bag on the second night. That was great. Just cute and cuddly. And no, it wasn't fun. But, uh, that, well, that part, the, the whole trip in itself was fun. That part was a little fun. Uh, that was exciting. And then uh, the most important thing to me, though, the thing that uh, I came away with from this the last four days was I had so many great gospel discussions. Um, it was deeply meaningful and a deeply spiritual experience for me. And just to be able to, to knit my heart in unity with my in-laws, who I consider the same as blood to me, and to be able to have that experience was the part that really meant the most to me. So I'm grateful I was able to do that with them and uh, super thankful my father-in-law planned that. I also want to give a shout out to Charlie and Dant. Uh, let me know that they're listening this week. Hey, thanks guys. Glad to have you listening and uh, hope to, to see you guys soon. And then also, uh, really, let's just get into it. How about that? But this section of scripture, Helaman 1 through 6, it's uh, I like to call this part like Mormon spoilers. All right. He, uh, here's an example in Helaman two, ch- Helaman chapter two, verse 13, he says, and behold, in the end of this book, you shall see the, that this Gadiant did prove the overthrow, yea, almost the entire destruction of the people of Nephi. Like, come on, come on, Mormon, don't be spoiled in the end here. Uh, he actually does this a couple of times where he'll kind of stop the, what he's going through and reading and doing it in like real time. And then all of a sudden he'll be like, and here's my thoughts on this. Uh, I, I don't know what the switch was, why this comes in, and Helaman specifically. I know as we get closer to uh, the coming of Christ and then also later the clo- the coming to the end and to his modern time, he actually does this more and more frequently. And 
I've always thought it interesting that he, it's funny, he, he really throws down these spoilers like, and, you know, don't get too attached to the Nephites because they're all going to die. Uh, you know, just spoiling a great end. <laughs> but it, it's, uh, so I've always kind of found the humor in, uh, in his spoilers. But one through six covers 29 years. And uh, it's crazy. Just in six chapters, we're going to we're gonna breeze through 29 years. A ton happens. A lot of uh, political things happen. They go through just several uh, chief judges because they're all murdered. And um, we also hear just vaguely kind of some of the, uh, the Nephi day-to-days and whatnot. And like how they build their houses, building it out of cement, uh, their trade. Don't get a ton on it, but we get a little bit, which is... Uh, to me, I've always found that unique. And then, uh, finally, the thought I have here is just covering the chapters is that for the first time we see a huge shift where the Nephites are actually becoming a major problem in uh, in the church, and actually the Lamanites are the ones picking up the mantle of faithfulness and strength. And so, interesting changes and shifts that are occurring right now uh, where we're at in the Book of Mormon. But with that, let's get into it. The book of Helaman records both triumphs and tragedies among the Nephites and Lamanites. It begins with a serious difficulty among the people of the Nephites, and the difficulties keep coming throughout the record. Here we read about political intrigue, bands of robbers, rejection of the prophets, and pride and disbelief throughout the land. But we also find examples like Nephi and Lehi, and and the more humble part of the people, who not only survive, but thrive spiritually. Uh, something I hope I can say of myself and, and uh, those close to me. How did they do it? How did they stay strong while their civilization began to decline and fall apart? The same way any of us stay strong in the mighty storm, the devil sends to beat upon us by building our lives upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. So the first uh, first section, first chunk, pride separates me from the spirit and strength of the Lord. Here we get into the pride cycle. There's a great graphic that really uh, illustrates this. And... So I'm going to skip reading that first part. I want to get into the questions they ask. I think these are great. It says, look for examples of this cycle as you read. You may even want to mark examples when you find them. Here are some questions to help you understand this pattern and see how it might apply to you. What evidences of pride do you see among the Nephites? Do you see similar examples of pride in yourself? Uh, So as you've heard me say before, I love some of the questions they give. It feels like it's an obvious answer. Yes. Yes, I do. And actually an example. So as I was driving back from my fishing trip, it was just me in the car. I was driving alone, and I had been thinking about, uh, like I said, it was a lot of gospel discussions that we had had on the trip, and I just had really been feeling the spirit. As I was driving home, I was just fe- thinking about it. I was pondering all that had happened and occurred and my testimony, where I stand, and, and I just started to feel great about myself. And I thought about the choices I've been making uh, recently that I feel like have brought me closer to Christ, and as I was thinking about all these things, I kid you not, in my head, at one point, I was like, I am awesome. Like, I am so awesome, and I am so spiritual. And I quickly stopped, and I felt a warning bell go off in my head. And I was like, wait a minute, I've fallen into this pattern before. I've done this before, where I've been feeling the Spirit, I've been feeling strong, I've been feeling close to the Lord, and then I start to think that it's me. I'm the change. I'm the reason that good things are happening in my life. And, you know, I know it's from this reading, but I started... I was like, I immediately stopped. I had, uh, I was listening to an audio, uh, not a, not a book. I don't know what you call it, but I'm listening to this. It's called, um, uh, the psychology of achievement by Brian Tracy. 
And so I was listening to this uh, on my drive. I quickly paused it where I was at, stopped. And as I was driving, I said a prayer and I just pleaded with the Lord that he would forgive me for even that quick moment of pride where I was like, I thought that I was the, that it was me that's awesome. It's me that's causing this change. And I said, I recognize a hundred percent that it is the, it's the Holy Ghost. It's the atonement. And it is not me. Please forgive me for even that moment of pride. And I'm going to keep doing that pattern because um, as I've looked back through my life, every single time I have fallen away from the spirit, even in the slightest, even in like the slightest way, uh, every time I found myself in crooked paths, it always began, at least for me, it always began because I started to believe that I was the, the one causing about change or I was the one who had the power to be doing these things. And, and that's the greatest falsehood that I could think, or I think any of us could think. So don't let that pride creep in. And I'm going to, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to fight this. I'm combating this on the daily. Uh, I know I definitely struggle with this, especially as I make those like righteous changes in my life. And then I am blessed. Oh, it's so easy to be like, wow, I'm just freaking awesome. I'm great. Uh, yeah, that might be like, we're all great, but it's the Lord that's making those changes happen. And it's as we draw closer to him, that's why we feel the light and, uh, it's his light. He can, he can give it and he can take away. So that was just an example that I had saw just this week where I did see pride creep in and I immediately was scared and was like, no, 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 no. And I switched it over to gratitude and recognizing where it comes from. Uh, what are the consequences of pride and wickedness? What are the consequences of humility and repentance? And it gives some scriptures and great examples. And uh, for me, just summed up is that the consequences of pride and wickedness is that we fall away from Christ. But the consequences of humility and repentance, we come closer to him. We actually feel more powerful. We feel uh, more awesome. So it's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing there that as you start to feel like you're closer to Christ, you're going to feel good. You're going to feel great. You're going to feel blessed and you're going to see the blessings in your life more readily. And then the trick is to, uh, to not fall back into that pride cycle of thinking it's you. It's not. What did Helaman want his sons to remember and how can remembering these truths help you avoid becoming prideful? We're actually, I'm going to actually talk about this later in, uh, in, in a different section and in, in a different, different chunk. So I'm not going to cover that right now. My thoughts there, but, um, the one question that it doesn't ask that I want to ask you is, so how do we avoid continuing this pride cycle in our own lives? We see it with the Nephites easily, and I think we can see it in other people's lives easily. But what about our, our own life? I had a BYU professor, actually, that explained that there's another cycle, um, not just the pride cycle, but that it's called the humility cycle, where so it goes from humility and repentance, righteousness and prosperity, and then it moves on to recognizing the blessings and then uh, continuous humil- humility and repentance. Uh, you can actually get rid of the pride and wickedness and the destruction and suffering and go straight into the humility. And that's what we all need to be doing in our own lives is that we don't have to fall into this cycle. We just need to be conscious and always recognizing um, that it's Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, that are, are making those blessings come true in our life, not us. 
In the next chunk, I could be sanctified as I yield my heart to God. In Helaman 3, Mormon described a time when the church was so prosperous and blessed that even the leaders were surprised. <laughs> I, always, I, like, I like the way that says, and I like it how it's in those verses. But eventually some people became prideful, while others grew stronger and stronger in their humility, even to the purifying and the sanctification of their hearts. Notice in verse 34 to 35, what the more humble people did... <laughs> What the, yeah, what the more humble people did to become sanctified. How do these things help you become more sanctified? It may help to know that the guide to scriptures defines sanctification as the process of becoming free from sin, pure, clean, and holy through the atonement of Jesus Christ. What do you feel inspired to do to follow the example of these disciples? What are you doing to yield your heart to God? Um, I read that because really what I wanted to focus in on is that when it says sanctification, it's the process of becoming. Uh, I want to reiterate, and I've, I'll say this, I've said this before on other things, and I will continue to say, say it, that it is a process, not an event. And if we get hung up that sanctification is an event, repentance is an event, faith is an event, on and on and on, we will completely miss out on the gospel message, uh, what the gospel is. Um, also, I think we'll get caught up in our failures, thinking that our failures are, our failures often an event, uh, do not impede um, what's the right word I want to use here? Okay, our failings and our sins do not prevent the process of the gospel or the process of sanctification, like permanently, right? Those are stumbling blocks that actually help us as we humble ourselves and turn to Christ, who he then helps us through those roadblocks and those stumbling blocks. Uh, he helps us on this process, and that process is us learning to turn our hearts to Christ. So I think if we if we look at our failings and our sins as uh, events that stop the whole process, then we are we're not understanding the process and we're also hurting ourselves along the way where uh, we're falling away from that iron rod, we're falling away from the tree and uh, leading ourselves into dark paths. So I just want to I really want to emphasize, that if your thinking is that all of these things in the gospel are events that take place, like baptism is, is an event, but it's really the process that we need to be focusing on. And you can find joy in the journey as you look at it like like a process, because that's what it is. In uh, the next chunk, my faith is strengthened by the greatness of the evidences I have received. Um, so it talks about, in this, it just talks about how Elder Holland dis discusses that the fruit of the living gospel is evident in the lives of Latter-day Saints everywhere. And then, but before that, like, let me just read the whole thing. You have more faith than you think you do because of the what the Book of Mormon calls the greatness of the evidences. The fruit of the living gospel is evident in the lives of Latter-day Saints everywhere. Um, and then it goes on at the end where it gives this question. What other experiences have strengthened your faith in Christ and his gospel? And that's the question that I actually focused on uh, in this chunk. So I want to share a story. Um... It's not a big story, but this story was deeply meaningful to me. It probably won't be deeply meaningful to you, and there's a point to that. There's a reason for that, um, which I'll talk about right after I tell this story. So here we go. Okay, when I was 15 going to 16, uh, I was because I'm the oldest in my family, I had no sibling before me to help me understand how driver's ed worked. Uh, driver's ed was at my high school. It was offered as a class. But it was only offered as a quarter, so you had to take a different quarter class. Now, I didn't understand how this worked. I also didn't understand when you were supposed to take driver's ed. I thought you had to be 16 first. That is not the case. So I didn't sign up for driver's ed because my birthday is in May, 
and that would be at the end of the school year. So I didn't want to, uh, I figured I'd be a senior by the time I could take driver's ed, not a junior. Uh, is that right? Senior? No, no, sophomore. I was a junior. You know, whatever it was, regardless. So I didn't sign up for it at all. I signed up for a different class. Uh, as I as the semester started, I then quickly found out that I was the... Oh, yeah, so this would have been a sophomore, wouldn't it? Okay, so this was as a sophomore. I thought I had to be a junior. There we go. Uh, I had signed up for this class instead of driver's ed. Found out I was the only sophomore in a junior class because typically all the sophomores sign up for driver's ed. And then, you know, the next semester, all the juniors sign up for this other class that I decided to sign up for. So then I had to make a decision. Uh, well, I had I started asking around and found out how driver's ed worked, that you didn't need to be 16, blah, blah, blah. Well, I had to transfer classes. The way that, cl tra that class transfer worked in my high school is that you went for a lottery number in the beginning of the semester because everyone had classes they needed to transfer. So they did it in a lottery basis. And then you got your classes based off uh, what what lottery number you were given. And if the class wasn't available, then you couldn't transfer. So the day came that I, it was transfer day. And I remember it was like five or $10 for a class transfer or something like that. I had set the money the night before all of this on a big stack of books. And my room was always disorganized. And honestly, I guess those traits have still carried over to this day. But uh, I'd set it on this very precarious stack of books so that I wouldn't remember it the next day. Woke up, got ready, grabbed my backpack, walked out of uh, my room, and as I was leaving, I heard a giant crash. Went, uh, went back into my room, saw this huge stack of precarious books that had literally been there for months, undisturbed, and uh, I started cleaning it up, found the 5 or $10, whatever it was, and picked up. I was like, oh my goodness, what a great reminder. Like, how fortunate, <laughs> how fortunate that this stack of books that has been there for months happened to fall down so that I could remember my money. So I grabbed that, put it in my pocket, go to class. At the end of the day, get ready. To, uh, I had been praying that whole day to be able to get to, into driver's ed, and I heard rumor that driver's ed was full. There was no spots left, and I really didn't want to have to be a junior, uh, the only junior <laughs> in the driver's ed course. So I had been praying that whole day. Uh, comes to the end, I get lottery number 98, and it started at 1. And I remember thinking, there is no way, and, and there was a lot of sophomores there and a couple juniors. I was like, there is no way that uh, I'm going to get into a driver's ed class. So I was pretty sad. I had to wait there an hour and 15 minutes. Um, had texted my dad, said, hey, you're going to, like, if you could pick me up a little later, that'd be great. Because otherwise, I'm stranded. Anyway, so I texted them. And then, uh, and then I sat there and I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I saw a lot of excited kids and a lot of disappointed kids as they came out and the classes they had wanted were full. Finally, my number is called. I go in, meet with the counselor. There was, I think, six or eight counselors or whatever. All of them had students with them. She calls me in. She's like, okay, what class can we transfer? I was like, I need to transfer out of such and such class into driver's ed. And she looks at me. She's like, oh boy. She's like, I don't know if there's any left. A lot of kids have been asking for transfers into driver's ed today. We'll see what we can do though. And I was like, yeah, it's, I know. And I was already expecting disappointment. She gets on the computer, types it all up. And all of a sudden she's like, oh my gosh, there is one spot left exactly when you need it. And I just was like, grab it, grab it now. Cause I knew there were other kids at that same time trying to transfer class. So um, I was like, grab it. She signs me up. 
She's like, and I was just beaming. She's like, I've never seen someone so happy about a class transfer. And I was like, I was like, I've just been really praying today. And so, uh, anyway, I thanked her, thanked her a thousand times, walked out and she's like, don't forget to pay for your class transfer or else won't be able to do it. And I was like, oh yeah, 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 of course. Go in, pull out the money, pay for my class transfer. And I walked out floating out of the high school. One of the only times I ended up floating because I wasn't a huge fan of high school. Walked out, dad and my sister were out waiting in the car for me. I got in and I, I remember just feeling, uh, it was one of the first times in my life, being so completely aware that Heavenly Father knew who I was. He cared about what I cared about and that, um, that he loved me, that he loved me. That was, that was a defining moment in my life. It was very small. And as I look back now, I think, wow, really wouldn't have mattered <laughs> if I got into driver's ed or not. There's a lot of actually other alternatives I didn't know about, uh, for all of that. And just a lot of things, you know, like it really didn't matter. But to me, 15-year-old Dalton, who, you know, didn't want to be the only person that couldn't drive out of his friends, that meant everything. That was one of the most important things for me in my life at that time. And more importantly than that, to this day, that was the, um, I'd always had faith. I've never really struggled with faith. That's not something that I've had to deal with. Uh, dealt with other weaknesses, but definitely not that one. But that 100% was the day that I credit being uh, the day that I gave my testimony. The Heavenly Father really did know who I was. I wasn't just a, a pawn in the world. I wasn't just some meaningless number in the universe. That I was known by the Lord. He cared about me. He loved me. And that experience helped to grow and continue to grow my faith. To even when I'd go through experiences where I was like, you're still there, right? Um, I've never forgotten that he, he does know who I am. So as I was thinking about what experience of strength in my faith in Christ, to me, it started out with, you know, the little things, uh, in the beginning is having, I knew my parents had a testimony. Therefore I had a testimony. I knew that we went to church. Therefore I went to church, but over time that wasn't strong enough. That wouldn't be good enough. I had to have my own testimony. And as I started putting into practice prayer on my own, actually saying prayers, um, believing and hoping that it wasn't just a useless me getting on my knees and praying to some unknown being, but actually believing and wanting to believe that there was a God who loved me, that was my heavenly father. As I did that, uh, I was given experiences that proved to me that my faith was not meaningless and it wasn't worthless. As I put myself in situations, as I was uh, reading the scriptures and actually believing that it, it you know, this really did come from inspired uh, prophets that this, that it wasn't just some made up words by a young fourteen year old boy. Um, I was given and have been given experiences that have continued to roll through and and provide the foundation of a real testimony that I have that I know that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ are not just real and true beings, but extremely loving, merciful, and um, deeply involved. Uh, family members in my life who, as I put continual faith in them, they will put continual faith in me. So that's my story. I think something I was thinking about this week. Like I said, it's, it's, it's small. 
and um, it's not a huge miracle story at all. It's really, uh, I mean, I, I don't, I don't really have a great adjective to explain it, but you know what I'm saying. But the reason I bring this up is that just as that small story helped to build my faith in such a significant way, I think we all have and can have those small experiences that might mean nothing to someone else, but will mean everything to you. Those are the ones you should hold sacred, you should hold dear, and you shouldn't discount those. Um, too often, I, I think that we get caught up in wanting the big miracle stories. We get caught up in hearing these uh, like miraculous things happening to people and that being the foundation of their faith. And those are fine and great, but I think it's the day-to-day small instances where you can recognize that Heavenly Father was indeed aware of you, knew exactly where you were and who you are, that creates the forest of faith. Not just one one massive tree, but thousands, if not millions of trees in your forest of faith. So that's uh, that was a thought I had there, is, is the small things are can be more significant to you in your own life, even if it, uh, you know, sharing those doesn't seem to be significant to others. In the next section, family, uh, ideas for family scripture study and family home evening. First chunk, as the prophet Mormon abridged the sacred record, he occasionally used the phrase, thus we see, to emphasize important truths. What did he want us to see in Helaman 3, 27 to 30? Throughout your study this week, you might pause occasionally to ask family members how they would complete the phrase, and thus we see, regarding what they have read. What truths do they want to emphasize? There's, a, there's a two scriptures in here that stuck out to me that I just love. One is in Helaman 3, verse 28, and the other is 29. In 28, it says, Yea, thus we see that the gate of heaven is open unto all, even to those who will believe on the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. The thought I had here is, why are we, as a society, uh, losing our faith in this? And even as members, why are we losing our faith in this? That, that the gate of heaven is open unto all. And we just have to believe on the name of Jesus Christ, and have faith in him and then do what he says. Um, why are we losing faith in this? And in 29, it says, Yea, we see that whosoever will may lay hold upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful, which shall which shall divide asunder all the cunning and the snares of the wiles and the wiles of the devil, and lead the man of Christ in a straight and narrow course across the everlasting gulf of misery, which is prepared to engulf the wicked. We do not have to be the smartest in the gospel. Uh, you know, we're not expected to know everything gosh, we're not even expected to know like a majority of the things. Uh, this is actually something I was talking to my brother-in-law, Trey, and the whole family was kind of discussing with him about missions that he'd be on his mission. He would experience a lot of uh, rejection. He'd also see a lot of times where he, you know, wouldn't know the answer to an investigator's question or even to his own questions. And that that was okay. He didn't need to be the smartest missionary in the field. He didn't need to know everything. He didn't need to be a master of the scriptures. That's not what was expected of him. But what is expected of him and all of us is to have faith in Christ and to keep trying every day and to come closer unto him, uh, you know, through prayer, scripture study, going to church, uh, all those things. And as we do that, it is God's power that divides asunder all the cunning and snares of the wiles of the devil. Uh, he's the power. And if we have faith in him, he will give us that power. So those are two of my thoughts that stuck out from, from that specific chunk. In the next chunk, uh, Helaman 5, 6 to 7. Really, I just like that that whole, uh, what have you done with my name? 
uh, I think about that myself of of what am I doing with my, with my name and I may am I making it a name that not only my ancestors would be proud of like I'm, I'm keeping I'm honoring their memory and their life but what about my my posterity am I setting up a good name for them that as they go out into the world people say ah you're Dalton Anderson's child like he's a great guy Therefore, I assume that you must be a great person as well. Kind of that. Am I, am I setting that good foundation? Next, John Keelan 512. This is obviously an important verse, uh, especially I remember my seminary years. This is a, uh, well, was scripture master. I guess they changed all that. So now I feel old because I don't even know what we have now. But to help your family visualize what it means to have a sure foundation, perhaps you could build a small structure together and place it on different kinds of foundations. You could then create a mighty storm by spraying water on it and using a fan or hairdryer to create wind. What happened to the structure when it was on different foundations? How is Jesus Christ like a sure foundation in our lives? I ought to try this uh, with, with Flynn and Maggie. We have a water table for them in our backyard. So that's a really easy way to be able to set up a little structure and then test it with them. So we got to do that. Uh, but I want to read this verse. And now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that you must build your foundation. That when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe because of the rock upon which ye are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. It is so vitally important that in our testimonies, we make sure to build that foundation in Jesus Christ. As a, as a child, it's okay and appropriate to, you know, use your parents' testimony or testimony of your friends or, or whatever, as you're, as you're gaining your own testimony. Like it's fine to have the experiences of others, but that will not last. And it, and it is not a foundation to keep on. It's, uh, and I've, I've learned that in my life, especially as I've seen, um, friends who have fallen off the path and, and left the gospel as I've seen, uh, mission companions who've done the same, uh, as I've, as I've witnessed prior church leaders, it is, it is no good to have your testimony built upon someone else because then you're counting on them. And, and that's also not fair to them. Um, we all need to be examples. We all need to be doing our part. But the best way we can do that is to put our faith in the one person who is the sure foundation, who did do his duty, who did do exactly what he promised he would do in the pre-mortal world and here on life. That is Jesus Christ. As we do that, there is nothing that can topple us over. And if you're going through a trial right now and you've felt like your faith is uh, has been put into question, then I think that's a great opportunity to recognize that maybe, just maybe, a chunk of your testimony, just a portion, isn't fully on Jesus Christ. I know I've used this for myself when I've gone through things, when I've gone through trials. If, the, if, if there's a point in my testimony where it feels like it's rocky or I'm rocky again, or I'm going through uh, those trials of faith, then I do some deep, deep reflection on which part of that testimony is not on Jesus Christ. And then I do everything in my power to correct that and put that foundation on Christ. And I will continue to do that. Uh, I do not feel like at th this point in my life that every single piece of my testimony is perfectly on Christ. But I do feel like I have a definitely a solid house built upon Jesus Christ and that foundation. And uh, and so that's that's the process, right? It's not an event, it's a process. 
And so as you, you know, move the chunks of your house, like maybe the the guest room or the, the bathroom or whatever it be, move that off of foundations that were, were sandy and you move it onto the rock of Christ. You build a solid house, you build a solid mansion, and I think we create our mansions in heaven that way. Next chunk, Helaman 5, 29 to 33. What experiences have we had with recognizing the voice of God in our lives? Uh, a thought I have here that I wanted to share is that as I've talked with people, I've discussed how I receive revelation and then they've discussed how they've received revelation. And what I have noticed is that while there are similar threads, we all hear the voice of God in different ways in our lives. For me personally, um, I hear the voice of God when I pray and then I stop and listen. And what, what occurs, um, I don't super know how to describe it, but I'll do my best. What occurs when I pray in true faith and, and whatever is that I, um, I listen and I listen intently and it doesn't happen all the time, but, but sometimes a, a voice that sounds very similar to my own will come back to me and start talking to me. Uh, so it's like having a conversation in my head and, uh, I, I know it's the Holy Ghost and not Satan when it feels like it's wisdom that's leading me uh, through light. Um, and with that, I've also seen there's been times in my life where Satan has used that same technique to try and um, provide me with revelation from him. It's uh, the same way, a voice in my head. And it, uh, I mean, I guess it sounds a little crazy that way. But it's like having a conversation with myself to myself to... Uh, giving me wisdom of what I need to know or what steps I need to take next or leading me down that path. And uh, the trick of knowing which is which has always been the fruit, uh, following what the scriptures say, you know, by your fruits you shall know them. Same with that revelation, the revelation that has not led to good fruit, I have later discovered was Satan. And uh, then I have to figure out, so what was it that I was doing or what was I trying to listen to that wasn't the words of God? And then it's, it's on me to kind of discern how that works. And I know other people receive revelation in different ways. Um, you know, I joked in my family, they're like, wow, I wish I had revelation. I received it like that. And I'm like, yeah, except, you know, the danger for the way I receive revelation is obviously when it's the same voice and it's my voice. It's very difficult to discern between, is it, is it Heavenly Father? Is this revelation direction from Heavenly Father? Or is this revelation direction from Satan? Um, anyway, I think it's important. The point, the thought I have that's to me the most important here is that it is vital that each of us learns how we receive revelation from the Lord. As we do that, then we'll be led down the path. And I'm making sure to also recognize that Satan can provide us with that same revelation. Uh, well, with revelation, and then we have to decide how to discern and, and use that. Um, in this improving personal study part at the end here, it says, be patient with yourself. A foundation of faith is built one piece at a time. Once again, I will reiterate for a third time, it is a process, everyone. It is a process, not an event. Do not get caught up in thinking it's an event. Some scriptures I want to go over real quick before we end. First one, in Helaman 1, verse 18. It says, and it came to pass that because of so much contention and so much difficulty in the government that they had not kept sufficient guards in the land of Zarahemla, for they had supposed that the Lamanites are not coming to the heart of the lands to attack the great city of Zarahemla. I was thinking about this in terms of my life. If, if uh, you know, I was the, the land of Nephi or land of the Nephites and Zarahemla is my heart, in what ways am I protecting my heart 
and am I slacking on my guard duties around the land? Am I, and, uh, I think about this just with my, my family, right? My family's my heart. Uh, my wife and my kids mean everything to me. They're what matters the most. Am I protecting them from Satan the way I need to be? Or, or do I believe that I have, you know, there's other things I need to be protecting and defending with my guard. Therefore I'm putting more conscious effort into protecting that, right? Like, am I too concerned about my career? Am I too concerned about, uh, my friends or my activity with, with my, with my friends, uh, on and on and on. And so the question I asked myself is where am I slacking on my guard and am I protecting my heart? Am I protecting what matters most? Am I making sure to protect my children, my wife? And am I, am I protecting my marriage by strengthening my marriage? Am I giving enough time, energy, attention to that? So in that same way, I would suggest to you, think about where your heart is and are you doing what you need to do to sufficiently be guarding that from Satan? Never say, uh, I think we put ourselves in danger when we think, oh, nothing could you know, take away what's most precious and sacred to me. That is certainly not the case. In 333, Helaman 333, uh, and in the 51st year of the reign of the judges, there was a peace also, save it where the pride which began to enter into the church, not into the church of God, but in the hearts of the people who professed to belong to the church of God. There's actually another verse I want to talk about as well on this same vein. It's in chapter 4, verse 11. Now, this great loss of Nephites and the great slaughter which was among them would not have happened had it not been for their wickedness and their abomination which was among them. Yea, it was among those who, among those also who professed to belong to the church of God. So he says this a couple times. Um, we see that right now, right? The wickedness uh, is it, that often the one that causes us the most pain is actually the wickedness that comes from our own members, those that profess to be the church of God. I think there's a huge thing where... We can all be members, but are we those who profess to be to the church of God? Or are we in, in word and deed members of Christ's church? It's a question I think we need to ask ourselves, but also to recognize that just because you are a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints means nothing if you are only professing to be a member and not doing anything uh, of what it truly means to be a member. If you're not increasing your faith and trying to increase the faith of others, then, uh, I don't know, I'd be questioning uh, just how deep that is. And, and excuse me, in Helaman 3, verse 36. And it came to pass that the 50 and second year ended in peace. Also, save it were the exceedingly great pride which had gotten into the hearts of the people. And it was because of their exceedingly great riches and their prosperity in the land. And it did grow upon them from day to day. I want to point something out here that wealth is not the defining factor of wickedness. It wasn't their wealth that was the defining factor of wickedness. Okay, they had gotten wealthy. They'd become wealthy. They'd been blessed. That was a blessing from the Lord. And because of that, then they, with their own agency, um, chose to become prideful. They chose to lead down that path of wickedness. Uh, so that was their choice. I think I've seen this where we conflate rich uh, wealth and richness with wickedness. And that is not the case. Um through my upbringing, I have had the opportunity to deal, uh, to, to have dealings with incredibly wealthy people. And in my time of, in my time and my experience, what I have seen is that there are certainly two types of wealthy people. There are those who are some of the most charitable people, uh, truly far better than, uh, your average, your average person. They, they use their wealth for good. They donate constantly and not just their money. They donate more time than anyone else. 
they uh, truly give of themselves. Uh, one one example of this actually is, is Scott Anderson, um, CEO of Zions Bank. He has let me come into his office and, and talk with him and, and has given me advice. A man who does not have a spare minute, like he is, is so busy and has so much going on. And yet, uh, back when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my career, he gave me uh, an hour of his time. Uh, and and he, he wasn't impatient with me. He was extremely gracious, uh, made me feel like I was... You know, I was in his office, but I, it made me feel like I was in the living room of his home and uh, just one of the kindest and most charitable human beings I've ever met. And on the flip side, I have met wealthy people who who definitely are exactly what you kind of would stereotypical, stereo, stereotypically think of when you think of a kind of a rich, prideful person. And And those are people I choose not to have as my examples. So don't conflate wealth with wickedness. Okay. It's a, it's a choice. It's not the wealth itself. And I, I've, I've seen people fall into that trap where they think, oh, because someone's wealthy, therefore they're not a good person. Not the case. 423 to 25. And because of their iniquity, the church began to dwindle and they began to disbelieve in the spirit of prophecy and in the spirit of revelation and the judgments of God to stare them in the face. And they saw that they had become weak like unto their brethren, the Lamanites, and that the spirit of the Lord did no more preserve them. Yea, it had withdrawn from them because of the spirit of the Lord doth not dwell in unholy temples. Therefore, the Lord did cease to preserve them by his miraculous and matchless power. For they had fallen into a state of unbelief and awful wickedness. And they saw that the Lamanites were exceedingly more numerous than they, and except they should cleave unto the Lord their God, they must unavoidably perish. This is a great warning. I love those verses. And uh, specifically that last part, we must cleave unto the Lord or we will unavoidably perish. 617 uh, says, For behold, the Lord had blessed them so long with riches of the world that they had not been stirred up to anger, to wars, nor to bloodshed. Therefore, they began to set their hearts upon their riches. And like I'd said earlier about riches, right, it's when you set your hearts upon, and that's the problem, not the riches themselves. Yea, they began to seek to get gain that they might be lifted up one above another. Therefore, they began to commit secret murders and to rob and to plunder that they might get gain. So this is where unrighteous competition becomes a huge danger. Competition is fine. It's the unrighteous competition that is a great sin. Uh, this where it says they began to seek to get gain that they might be lifted up one above another. Uh, when I think of competition that's righteous, I think of it as pushing someone and pushing yourself to be better, right? Um, in high school, I, had, I was surrounded by amazing, great friends and... Uh, because of their testimonies, I wanted to push myself to have a stronger testimony. And later they would tell me, because of my testimony, they were pushing themselves to have a stronger testimony. That's righteous competition. That's some good stuff right there, right? When we're pushing each other to be better, that's exactly right. And when you're playing games as a family, and it's all, and you're, you're able to, I mean, you're competing to win, but uh, you're doing it for fun and, and togetherness, that's righteous competition. When it's like, I'm going to beat you and destroy you and put you down, that's unrighteous competition. So there's a difference. Competition itself is not the problem. It's the righteous versus unrighteous competition. Finally, last verse, verses, chapter 6, 25 to 26. Now behold, it is the secret oaths and covenants which Alma commanded his son not to go forth unto the world, lest they should be lest they should be a means of bringing down the people unto destruction. Now behold, those secret oaths and covenants did not come forth unto Gadian from the records which were delivered unto Helaman, but behold, they were put into the heart of Gadian by the same being who did entice our first parents to partake of the forbidden fruit. That is scary stuff. That is scary stuff. And uh, as a reminder, 
this verse reminds me anyway, that Satan is also providing revelation to those of us on earth. Um, so it's, you know, as we have the scriptures to teach us righteousness, Satan is also able to reveal unto others unrighteousness and wickedness. Uh, and and we, as we see, as Mormon has spoiled for us, we will see the great destruction that Gadian and the Gadian robbers would uh, unleash upon the Nephites. And ultimately, it was because of their own unrighteousness. That's all I got. So thank you for joining me in this family room discussion. And please share your ideas, questions, and insights that you gain from Helaman chapters 1 through 6 with me. Until we meet again, have a blessed week.